Most people think fraud can't happen in their ministry. Join us as we discuss ways to prevent, detect, and correct this in your organization. Pursuing God-honoring responsible stewardship in governance, financial accountability, and fundraising. Welcome to the Excellence in Ministry podcast from ECFA. Welcome to another Excellence in Ministry podcast. I'm Vonna Lau, Executive Vice President at ECFA. I'm so excited because today I'm joined by Michael Martin, an attorney and CPA and Executive Vice President at ECFA. Michael works primarily with churches, but we're privileged to have him join us today on the ministry side of the house, if you will. Michael, thank you for joining us and discussing this really relevant topic with our ministry listeners. Absolutely. Hey, I love all of our ECFA members, so I am glad to be here with you. Awesome. Well, you know what? We're going to jump right in because it seems like the time goes really fast every time we do a podcast. So we're going to get right into the heart of the matter, and I'm going to throw you out a first question. Um, Start us off talking a little bit about some basic fraud prevention steps that ministries can use in their organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And hey, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, but I will say These are part of a great resource that we've put together here at ECFA. It's a fraud prevention checklist. So if you're out there in ministry and you're saying, hey, you know, we we need to have our eyes on on this issue. Uh, What is a resource we can follow? We're going to be following off of that resource today, right? That's right. So what you're saying is they need to listen intently, but they don't necessarily have to take copious notes. We've done that for them. Exactly. Especially if you're in the car or at the gym. (laughs) Perfect. perfect. But yeah, just in terms of some basic fraud prevention steps, I mean, I think a lot of times when it comes to fraud prevention, we think, oh, it's, you know, it's all about the numbers and keeping our eye on that. But I think one of the uh, things that we talk about in the resource as just an early step, taking a, a big picture look at things is the importance of having that ethical tone at the top, because really the way that the culture is set from the top leadership, I mean, that's what trickles down throughout the organization and people really look to is what is the acceptable kind of behavior, right? And so I would say before we even get into the nuts and bolts of the numbers, we have to look at as a board, as a a CEO, as a leadership team, what kind of tone are we conveying to the rest of our organization? So I would start there. I think that's great. And, And I would follow it up with... Um, maybe that's the highest level, then let's step down a level and talk a little bit about um, conflict of interest policies. Those can be so beneficial. Um, And yes, we're talking about fraud, but they're beneficial in fraud prevention as well, because if we've got a good conflict of interest policy in place, it means that we know transactions that might take place between the organization and either board members or members of staff and leadership are going through a process so that they're properly vetted, they're properly approved. And maybe besides just preventing fraud, which we're talking about, it's such an important thing from a perception standpoint. Absolutely. No. If you've got those things in place, then if someone does challenge it, you can go back and say, look, this is what we've done. We've followed this policy that's been in place already. uh, And it protects not only the ministry, but it protects the individuals that are involved as well. That is so true. And I would say having the policy is really helpful because a lot of times when we talk to organizations, they would say, 
oh, of course, you know, that's kind of part of our DNA. That's part of our culture. We kind of know it in our gut, but actually having a policy that's written out that spells, okay, what is a conflict of interest? How do we move forward? I think having that policy is so helpful. It can also recall, you know, to our memory, sometimes, you know, they say we're blind to our own blindness in some ways, right? And so having this conflict of interest policy, but then also take it a step further and have that annual disclosure form that folks fill out that causes them to take a, a step back maybe it's once a year or periodically and say, what are the potential conflicts that I might have? Getting those to be recorded, getting those to be shared um, within the board, within senior leadership. That way folks throughout the year kind of know if potential conversations come up in areas where might someone have a conflict of interest. I think that's a good point. And really that annual questionnaire, sometimes it's just what we need to jog our memory because it's not that people are intentionally hiding transactions. It's that, you know, that maybe only happens in February and we just don't even think about it again for the rest of the year. And so if there's one time of the year that we really sit down and think through what those things could be, I think that's helpful. And the other piece that I would add to it, Michael, is when those are gathered together and you get all the questionnaires from the board members and staff, make sure that someone has the responsibility of following up on it. Um, I've seen literally where it happened that an admin person was assigned the responsibility of gathering them put them in a file folder in a drawer, and leadership didn't even really think about the fact that, oh, we should review those and make sure (laughs) that we know what's taking place. So follow it all the way through from the policy to the questionnaire to the follow-up that might be required. I think they're called monitoring forms for a reason, right? Oh, maybe that's it. (laughs) There's something to be monitored. That's right. Well, what else have you got for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing that we talk about in our little cheat sheet here is the review of financial information by ministry leaders and board members. Um, That is so important because I think, you know, we live in a busy world and uh, all of us are guilty of that in some ways. And so I think one of the great things about a nonprofit organization, about Christian ministries, is we have a high trust culture. But one of our greatest strengths in that way, being a high trust culture, is also one of our greatest weaknesses when it comes to the possibility of fraud taking place. And so we talk about that proper review of financial information being so important because in those fiduciary roles that we're in as leaders of our organizations, as board members, um, we can never be too busy to ask the right questions. And so making sure you're getting the proper reports that come through and then taking time to ask you know, I would say not necessarily out of laziness, but really taking a careful look at those um, is one piece of it. But then also asking the tough questions. That's that's all kind of in that concept of accountability, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's take that piece of it, that you know, review of financial information. That financial information may come from internal accounting, but it also may be that there's been an independent CPA that's involved in it. So we'll, we'll dig down one layer and then we'll dig down another layer in a minute and talk about segregation of duty. Yeah. So we'll just work our way down. But this independent uh, involvement of a CPA is really beneficial, you know, to have an outside set of eyes that's looking at the financial information that the board is using to make decisions, that leadership is using to make decisions, uh, that really ought to be the process for any ministry. And that may look different. Um, We love audits, right? (laughs) We do. It's a requirement of one of our standards. It is. We do allow for smaller organizations to have a financial review or a compilation for the smallest of organizations, but all of those require an independent CPA. 
And so if you are listening to this podcast and maybe you don't have that relationship yet, we would encourage you to do that, to look for a CPA who really understands nonprofits and understands ministries because they'll add value to what you're doing. I, I want to make sure that no one thinks this is kind of a check the checklist and, you know, we've got to get an audit. So we just mark that off. This absolutely really ought to be valuable to them. So encourage them to do that. And then let's dig deep. Let's go talk about segregation <laughs> of duties. And I promise we're only going to talk about this for a couple of minutes, but we could have like a series of podcasts just on segregation of duties. It's such a broad topic. Um, let me start by saying the importance of it is that there isn't one person solely responsible for all aspects of, of any of the accounting functions, be that cash receipts or cash disbursements, payroll, et cetera. Uh, and kind of going back to what we were talking about with the conflict of interest questionnaires, that that's really to protect, again, both the organization and the individual. And I would say in my experience, and certainly chime in, Michael, but yeah. the majority of the time that I see, you know, fraud, embezzlement, misappropriation, et cetera, there was a breakdown in the segregation of duties. You took the words right out of my mouth, <laughs> honestly. I don't know if it's great minds think alike, but that's yeah, yeah. exactly where I was headed with that too. Um, and, and that's just such a, a core principle, right, is making sure that there are those proper segregation of duties. We don't give any one person too much control. Maybe one of the things that we could speak to, because I know within ECFA membership, one of the things that's great is we have ministries of all sizes, um, you know, that are part of ECFA. And a lot of this is scalable, um, depending on the size of the organization or the size of the ministry. Sometimes we might get a little bit of pushback, right, from a smaller organization that would say, well, we maybe only have uh, one one employee, or we have one employee, one part-time employee. So how, Vana, in a smaller organization, I'm going to turn the questions over to you. Smart. That's great. <laughs> you know, what would you recommend? You've worked with a lot of smaller ministries out there. How do we make sure that we have good segregation of duties? Well, really smart to deflect to me. Uh, you know, took the pressure right the off yourself. Of this, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I would say, let me start by saying, I used to have maybe compassion or pity on those really small organizations. It's like, oh yeah, I understand that's difficult. And then I saw so many of them that did it well that for everyone else, I lost all my compassion and pity. I was like, if they can do it, so can so you. So can you, there you go. <laughs> and I would say that they do a couple of things. Number one, they, they look at what needs to be divided up from a responsibility standpoint. And they understand that because it doesn't take three or four or five people. It does take two. But what are the key things that you need to separate? And then how can we go about doing that? Well, maybe we have one person that does all of the accounting, but you probably still have an executive director or you've got a development person or you've got somebody else in the office. If it's literally a one-person show and you've got one employee, then you've got a board, right. you've got volunteers, you've got somebody else that you can involve in there. And so I know that no one is doing this solo because I know you've got a board. I know that you've got access to others. And, and that would be probably the place to start is looking at, I'm going to try not to get too technical and accounting geek on anybody here. <laughs> Don't do that. I promise I'll try. So the three things without getting too in-depth are access um, you know, the custody, the authorization, and the record keeping. So the custody in 
Cash disbursements would be who has access to the check stock. The record keeping is who enters things into the financial records, and the authorization would be who are the check signers. If you can do all three of those, that's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And so all we need to do is remove one of those three things, and we've put some good controls in place. If the person who has the check stock and enters things into the financial records isn't a check signer, then that helps. Um, And you can do it a number of different ways. But look at that both with, you know, cash receipts and cash disbursements. How do we protect against that? Perfect. Well, thanks for answering my question. (laughs) Glad to. Before we move on, let me let you um, explain anything else that you think is helpful in this whole area of basic fraud prevention steps. Sure. I would say one of the just kind of the other key pieces related to what we just talked about, too, with this, you know, the scale and the size of the organization. But I think this is so important as a basic fraud prevention step is just understanding your highest areas of risk. So that relates both to the size of organization and also the type of ministry. And that's why it's so important not to necessarily just go out and look at someone else's internal controls and copy and paste them into your organization. Um, But you really need to think through based on our type of ministry and what we do, how we function, where our finances come from and where they go, that's where it becomes really important to detect the potential areas of fraud within your ministry. Well, and that's also where scalability comes into play. So I was talking about, you know, answering your question of the one-person office. And as you pointed out, I mean, we work with ministries from a one-person office to some of the largest ministries in the country. And I want to make sure that we come back to that, and make it relevant for everyone, because as you go up that scale yes. in the internal controls, you get to a point where there are internal audits type procedures that are part of that as well. And whether that's a full-blown internal audit department in the largest of ministries, or if it's an individual, or if it's part of an individual's responsibilities, or even if that's outsourced, you know, that's something that you could have an independent person come in and do on a periodic basis. You know, a lot of missions organizations do it that way with their field operations. They'll bring in volunteers that will go and do internal audits on the field. So, I think the takeaway for today is no excuses, and there are different sized uh, operations that require different internal controls and different monitoring of those controls. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great summary. Well, let's move on. And uh, that was the fun part. That's the prevention. <laughs> Where are we headed to next? Where are we headed to? Let's talk about just some behaviors and actions that you might see a member of the finance team display if there were fraud that were occurring in an organization. Uh, If you read any of the studies, you look at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, you look at some other things, you know, those of us who are interested, disappointed in this topic, maybe, (laughs) um, you see commonalities. So what are some of those things? Yeah, absolutely. And I might take uh, even a step back too and just kind of throw in another one of these key principles when it comes to looking at fraud, preventing fraud, and that is kind of that fraud triangle Mm -hmm. where they talk about what are the elements, what is that perfect storm, if you will, that leads to fraud taking place within an organization, not just a nonprofit, but any organization. And that is the pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. Those are the kind of the three points. And what what you're talking about, Vaughn, is what are some of these behaviors that you might look at? Well, some of those do go to that pressure element, which looks at, you know, in order for somebody, you know, most of us are... uh, that are serving in nonprofits. We have a heart for the ministry. We want to do the right thing. Um, 
but also human beings and circumstances happen. Things take place where maybe somebody comes under some kind of a financial pressure. Or it's a family pressure of some kind that would cause them to kind of make that shift and potentially commit a fraud against an organization. So you want to take a look at, you know, things like within an organization, someone that might have uh, a known financial pr pressure, like let's say there's a spouse who loses a job or somebody becomes ill in the family or, you know, something happens where there's this financial need that presents itself. Those would be one of the top things you might look at in kind of trying to determine, let's really make sure that we don't allow the pressure to lead to a potential fraud. Well, and I think that's why if you look at, especially in ministries, you look at the people that do commit fraud, they're the people we would never believe would do it. Almost always the case. Absolutely. They are typically long-term, very committed. Um, I mean, I have seen cases where literally the day before the, quote, story broke, um, senior leadership trusted them with their personal checkbook. I mean, it's mm. those types of people. Uh, so... That's a good thing to understand. Looking at just some of the behaviors, you know, these are people when when it starts to occur and they get kind of sucked into it, you'll see some behavioral changes like mood swings. Mm. Um, maybe they weren't that way before. Some defensive attitudes that you're just not used to to seeing. And then they start to even complain. You know, sometimes there's you know, they're dissatisfied with their job or, or they're dissatisfied with their pay. So those are visual cues, I think, um, that you see that really ought to be a warning sign. Absolutely. I throw in maybe one more, too, that I think maybe it's even at the top of our list, and that is someone that seems unwilling to take a vacation. Um, you'll read stories where a fraud is uncovered, where it just so happens that for one reason or another, that person happened to be out of the office, either because of an illness or, you know, ministry assignment or something. And sure enough, that's when somebody detects the fraud that takes place. So be sure that that's on your kind of your um, lookout list for somebody that really seems unwilling to ever step away from work and take that vacation. Well, and being a reformed auditor, which is how I refer to myself after 20 years <laughs> We're in working auditing. On you. I know. I'm a work in progress. I would also encourage people to understand that messy work or complex work that doesn't seem like it should be um, mm. the reconciliations that don't get done timely, a number of times those were definite indicators that there was something inappropriate going on. Uh, when something just seems like it shouldn't be that complicated or they're always trying to fix things, that may just be that they're disorganized. So I don't want to shed you know, any suspicion on people but it is something to be aware of um, because often it means that they're just trying to cover up and, and that gets messy. So be aware of that. Any one of these things individually doesn't necessarily mean something. And I don't want you running around your office concerned about what might be happening. But we do want you to have an awareness and to kind of consider those things, especially if they start to build on one another. Absolutely. And these are just taken, honestly, objectively from time and time again. These these patterns tend to repeat themselves in fraud situations. So in some ways, it's like the verse that says there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So that's what we're communicating is these are just some of the common things you might see. Well, before we move on to what happens if it does happen, <laughs> I want to come back to the fraud triangle that you talked about for just sure. a moment. Because in there, you talked about pressure, opportunity, and then that rationalization. And 
what I want listeners to be aware of is the only thing ministries really can control is the opportunity. The rationalization and the pressure is outside of your influence. If they've got pressure because there's a significant medical need in the family or a spouse lost a job, that's, that's beyond what you can control. And that rationalization of, I'm not valued, I don't get paid enough, you know, most of us in ministry would probably say, <laughs> yeah, we don't get paid enough. But when those rationalization things occur, again, you can't change someone's attitude. Absolutely. So you only have one spot that you can control, and that's the opportunity. That's where those fraud prevention steps come into play that we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast and why they're so vitally important. Because if that's the only part you can control, then you really need to focus there. Right. No, that is so true. As, as ministries, that's where we really have to, when we talk about fraud prevention, is really zero in. It's, it's good to be aware of the pressures. It's good to be aware of the rationalization aspects, but really doing everything we can within reason to control that opportunity factor. Well... As we pull all those things together, let's kind of come to the end of, well, now what? So if you believe that there may have been fraud or misappropriation that's taken place in your ministry, let's talk a little bit about follow-up steps. Where are some of the places that we would begin? Sure. And I'll start with, you know, maybe just the first two or three here. You know, the first one being immediately resist that urge to overreact or make any of those accusations well, you prematurely. know me well <laughs> <laughs> no, no 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 but that's human nature right i mean it's almost kind of like there's a, a process of shock that you have to work through i can't believe this may be happening you can't you know jump to those conclusions but don't overreact don't make those accusations prematurely because you may not have all the information or even if a fraud has happened, I think by stepping out and, and taking some of those actions, you might actually hurt yourself from being able to get to the bottom of some of the facts and some of the information. So that would be, I would say, number one. Secondly, be sure to notify the governing body, the board. I mean, as fiduciaries, they have that responsibility. You don't want them to find out through the newspaper? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Operate by the no surprises rule. I Amen. think we always say that. Um, also, potentially legal counsel, your insurance company, that's going to be really key know your insurance policy because depending on the you know the folks that you have coverage with they may have certain stipulations about when and how all of that reporting needs to be done and then maybe the the next thing I'll kind of throw out here and then let you take it from here but um, there may be a need depending on the circumstances to hire an expert in this area to potentially come in to do an investigation a forensic accountant type there are certified fraud examiners that are out there that can help you get to the bottom of it yeah let me follow on from there and say there are a couple of benefits to that. Number one, they're trained. And I'm hopeful that you don't have someone in your ministry that that's their role. Right. <laughs> that's their sole responsibility. So use those people that are experts in that field. It also takes the emotion out of it because they don't have any reason to feel one way or the other about it. They just want to get to the bottom of it. They want to get the facts. They want to have all the information to present. Whereas when you're trying to handle it internally, whether you want to or not, there are just feelings that are involved in that that sure. can cloud it either favorably or unfavorably. So having that independent expert can be really beneficial. Uh, I'm going to go back to the insurance company for just a minute because the point you made is something that the listeners really need to be aware of. And that's a decision that needs to be done well in advance of there ever being the possibility of fraud occurring. Because Oftentimes, the policy will require that you will turn this over to the legal authorities. Mm, mm -hmm. And again, talk about emotions being involved. 
I think if you ask most boards, if fraud occurs, would we turn it over? That discussion is a lot more objective when there isn't a person or a face involved. And once there's a person involved, you will tend to find that boards will be from one extreme to the other. One of them being we as a ministry were, you know, had fraud occur and we are going to absolutely, you know, do whatever we can to see that this is taken to the nth degree of the law. You will have people on the opposite end that say, we're a ministry. We operate by God's grace. We've got to extend forgiveness and allow them the opportunity to make this right. Those are some discussions you don't want to have <laughs> at that time. And so if you have the discussion in advance of how will we handle it if something like this happens, then you can line that up with your insurance policy. Because if your determination is we'll never turn this over to the legal authorities, you may be paying for part of a policy that would have no coverage whatsoever. So that's a good discussion to have up front. Uh, I would also say that you want to make sure that you follow through on any recommendations that you receive from the experts or the legal counsel that are involved as well. And then just maybe wrap it up a little bit with, okay, fraud occurred. We know what it was, but now what? Absolutely. Well, part of this will be um, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, but the importance of if we did find out that there, we talked in, earlier in the podcast about you know potential breakdown in segregation of duties or internal controls, or we find that as a result of the fraud that maybe those. Um, internal controls that we had in place were not adequate, then it's a matter of looking back and saying, okay, we're not going to allow the same thing to happen in the future. Right. Um, and so going back, looking, you know, taking the advice of, of the folks that you've brought in as professionals, um, all the lessons that you've learned, unfortunately, the hard way in a situation like that. And that would be just to make sure that those policies and procedures are updated. Excellent. Well, we've had a lot of fun. We've crammed a lot of information in just a few minutes time. And that's all the time that we have for this podcast. But Michael, I would like to thank you again for joining me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Remember, there are a variety of resources available on this and countless other topics, including eBooks, webinars, and documents in the Knowledge Center at ecfa.org. And if we can be helpful in any way, just call our office or feel free to email me. That's vana at ecfa.org. We look forward to being with you again soon for another Excellence in Ministry podcast.